Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. In the Bible, there are four biographies of the life of Jesus. The fourth one is entitled after the author named John. And John writes his account of Jesus' life much later in a much different way than the other Gospels do. One of the ways that it's different is how he tells the story of the resurrection. This is the day 2,000 years ago that Jesus rose from the tomb. And 2,000 years later, we celebrate this, we remember. But as we read this passage, there's certain questions that should arise in every single one of our hearts. And so the three questions I wanted to just dive into today is, why Jesus? What makes this Jesus so special? Second question I think this passage begs for us to ask is, why Mary? Why was Mary the one that had the privilege of seeing Jesus first? Why was Mary the one who had the privilege of being the first evangelist, the one telling the disciples and ultimately then the world of the good news of the resurrection? And the third question this passage just as longs for us to ask is, why does she think he's a gardener? What is it about this garden that John continues to go back to in the previous two chapters leading up to this point. So why Jesus? Why Mary? Why the garden? So that first question may be the most important question that any of us could wrestle with. Why Jesus? And in order to answer that, I, I think we have to step back and realize that there's no one in all of human history who has ever been like Jesus. It's interesting that every single religion and faith system and belief system comes from a set of teachings, comes from ultimately a philosophy of this is 
the meaning of life, or this is how you ought to live. But there's only four world religions that follow a persona. There's Islam, who follows Muhammad. There's Judaism, which follows Moses. We have Buddhism, which follows obviously Buddha. And we have Christianity, which follows Jesus. But Christianity is unique. Because not only does it present a philosophy, not only does it present teachings, not only does it present a person to follow, but it is the only faith where that persona claims divinity. And it is the only faith where that divinity is predicated on an actual act, a historical fact we could look back to, which is the resurrection, which is why today is so crucial because if Jesus raised from the dead he is who he said he was he is not just a great teacher offering another philosophy to follow in this life he truly is the son of God and so you might be sitting here and you might be new to Christianity maybe you just somehow found this on on YouTube or found our website and you're you're curious but skeptical about is Jesus really everything that he said he was? And the answer to that is, is found within the resurrection. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, says if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue of which everything hangs on is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. This comes from his book, The Reason for God. And so I would just like to offer you three things to consider if you're on the fence, if you don't know if Jesus really is who he claimed he would be. And there's much more to this, but just three things to ponder. Number one, it's interesting to point out that the eyewitness account that the entire resurrection story is built on is a woman's account. The reason why that's such a big deal is because in ancient culture, a woman's account didn't hold up in court. It wasn't valuable. Matter of fact, there is a, a document from a second century Greek philosopher by the name of Celsus, and this is what he writes. Women are what the resurrection account is based on. They were the first ones there and because women are not to be trusted, because they are hysterical, because they are not even to be considered human as much as a man, this account is corrupted. This was the ancient view of a woman's eyewitness account. Which begs the question, does that disprove the resurrection or does it prove it? I mean, think about it. If John was trying to make up a story, if there was trying to further this fictitious account of a resurrection, why would they put women as the first people of eyewitness accounts, unless it's just how it happened? The second thing that I would love for you to consider is that on multiple occasions, in multiple writings, there are dozens, actually hundreds of eyewitness accounts that were alive when the New Testament was written, meaning if they were writing something a hundred years later, well, who would be there to disprove them? 
but there are people named who saw the resurrection that were still alive when this was being written that could have refuted that, but they couldn't because it actually happened. The last thing I'd love for you to consider is if Jesus raised from the dead, then it would change his followers. Remember, his followers were not courageous men and women. Uh, matter of fact, the women were much more courageous than the men. Yet something happened that every single one of the disciples of Jesus ended up giving their life in tragic, horrific martyrdom. And maybe, maybe there could be one or two that would give up their life for a lie, but to get dozens, hundreds, thousands of followers to give up their life for a lie would take more faith than the reality that something actually happened that changed their life. Why, why Jesus? Well, because Jesus said that he would raise from the dead, and he did. It, it is one of the most proven historical events that we can look back on in the past thousands of years. And because of that, we can stand here today and understand that this changes everything. Why Jesus? Because Jesus is the Son of God, which means his teachings, his life, is something we can follow, something that we can be drawn to. N.T. Wright summarizes it like this. That is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. So Jesus was not just a great teacher. A matter of fact, some of his teachings are incredibly hard. But he was much more than that. He was, his claim was that he was divine. He was the Son of God. But he didn't just leave that up to our guessing. He said, I will prove it to you. Watch, I will die. The, the death that was predicted and prophesied for hundreds and thousands of years, and I will raise on the third day. And he did just that. Which is why we've, we see in this story, not just a human Jesus, we see a divine Jesus. The second question that's raised in this text, why Mary? Why, why is Mary Magdalene the first person privy to the information to see the risen Christ? And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what do we know about Mary? Mary Magdalene, we find in, in Luke's gospel in chapter 7, a woman who was known as a, as a sinful woman. We know she's from the town of Magdala, which was known in the Talmud as a town of prostitutes. And so it's safe to assume she's probably living a life of prostitution, which in that day could have looked more like human trafficking. We know that seven demons were cast out of her. And so this was a battered, bruised, outcasted, marginalized woman, if there ever was one in ancient culture. And she meets Jesus in Luke chapter seven. And they're at a dinner with the religious elites of the day. And Mary Magdalene breaks into the meeting, risking her life to start to drench Jesus' feet with her tears and to rub the dirt off them with her hair, which, by the way, was her only sense of glory that she had left. 
And in that moment, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day are irate. But listen to this. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Why was she the one? Maybe because she was forgiven much, which made her love much. It says that the, the, the verses before in John chapter 20, she was the first one at the tomb. It, it says that the first, the first watch, like the, I'm sorry, the last watch of the night, which would have been between three and 6 a.m. Can you just imagine? She can't sleep. She has to go after the Sabbath to go and bring the spices that were prepared for the burial of the only person who ever brought her worth and dignity. And it's in that moment that when John and Peter run back to tell the disciples that they have found an empty tomb, it is Mary Magdalene in that moment who stands there and gets to see Jesus, but she thinks that he's a gardener literally a, a caretaker of the grounds of this tomb. And she doesn't see it. Maybe she's crying, maybe she's hysterical, but then a moment comes when Jesus calls her name. And it's the only time in the gospel where her name is not Mary Magdalene or woman. It is the only time in John's gospel that it's just Mary. And she sees Jesus. I mean, she saw the, the figure, the person talking to her, but in that moment, she was called by name. Why Mary? Because I think there's not a single person in the world who cannot relate to that, who feels so far removed, so far gone from the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know today that he's calling your name. He knows you and loves you. There's nothing hidden from him, yet he's called you to himself. So what, what is it? If you would just quiet and listen, could you hear the Holy Spirit today call your name? If you've never given your life over to the Son of God, given your life over to Jesus, I can't convince you of something. You have to hear something. Would you hear your name called by the one who loves you more than anyone ever has? Which leads to our last question, why the garden? It says that Mary thinks that he's quite literally a keparos, which is a caretaker of a garden. Now what's interesting about John's gospel is he's the only one who uses this word for garden which is kepas, but he uses it five times in these last three chapters. It's a repeated theme, the garden, the garden, the garden, the garden, the gardener. And, the re and we see two different gardens here. 
And John's brilliant in his writing. His book is just amazing. But one of the things that's unique about John's biography of Jesus's life is he has a larger 30,000 foot cosmic view of what's going on here. And John wants us to know something. That before Jesus died on the cross, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he wrestled as he prepared his heart for the crucifixion. But he also wants you to know that the resurrection happened in a garden. Why? What's it, what is it about a garden? Well, if you were an ancient uh, Jewish listener, you immediately would be brought back to the opening pages of scripture, which also took place in a garden. I don't think that John is just telling the setting. I think he's telling a story, the story of a garden. You see, it was in a garden where God created life. And on the sixth day when he created vegetation and plants and soil, in that day he brought forth not just animals, but his, his crowning piece of creation, he created humanity and he said it is very good. And we have to remember this is where the Bible starts. It, it has to dictate and form how we read the rest of scripture. God created a garden and created man and woman in his image to tend that garden. This is where we see God. But then in that same garden, we see that divine dignity robbed because of a lack of trust. And in that moment, a brokenness was created, a severing was created as men and women were, or Adam and Eve were, understood I have shame and in that moment in that same garden though there was a prophecy that someday the an offspring of a woman would crush the head of the serpent and so I don't think it's by accident that thousands of years later that Jesus arose in a garden declaring over all of eternity that the head of death has been crushed and in that garden new life quite literally as it was springing up around him he himself was the embodiment of that life that no longer as humanity would we be marked by a destiny of darkness and death and brokenness but now resurrection was not only an event, it was an invitation. Colossians tells us that we have been raised with Christ. It's the imagery of the garden, but it's not where the garden stops. We see the same imagery of a garden, the very last chapter of the Bible. I wanna read this to you. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp for the light of the sun or the light of the sun for the Lord. God will give them light. They and they will reign forever and ever. This is garden imagery. We can't 
miss this, that Jesus, as he wrestles with the crucifixion in the garden three days later, is resurrected in a garden, the same place where humanity was, was, was created and also tarnished. But God said, I won't leave you like that. And as, you, as I stand here today in a greenhouse surrounded by beautiful plants, I, I want this imagery to, be, imagery to be stuck in your head this week to remember that Jesus has taken over death with his life. And so if you feel like you're in the middle of being buried, I just want you to hold on to the promise that we serve a God who not only has conquered death in his resurrection, but he's coming again, making everything right. And so there's nothing beyond his redemption and his repair. Would you do me a favor as we, as we close? I wanted to, to read you this, this quote from a book called The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. And he's wrestling with, with death. He's wrestling with brokenness of life. And he's reminded of eternity. He's reminded of, oh, our story is not done yet. This is what he says. All the things that have ever deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of it. Tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, echoes that died away just as they caught your ear. But if it should really become manifest, if there ever came an echo that did not die away, but swelled into the sound of self, you would know it. Beyond all possibility of doubt, you would say, here at last is the thing I was made for. It's in the garden that we get to say that, where we get to see the resurrected Christ call our name, and to be reminded in the same way a seed is buried and it only produces life. There's nothing in this life that can rob us from the resurrection power that Jesus has given us. So let's, let's pray. And as you pray, I want you to, to remember a few things. Number one, if you've never considered Jesus to be the Lord of your life, the God over all creation, the Savior of your soul, I would invite you to make that commitment today, to respond to that. And you would respond to what? If you have felt God calling your name, whether it was during worship or watching this video or the weeks past, respond. That's the Holy Spirit. It's His Spirit calling you to Himself. Respond. He is who He said He is. And remember that we are still in the middle of a garden. And that if it feels like a seed being buried, do not forget that in the story of God, it is a story of redemption. It is a story of life. And it is a story where we know our hope is coming because of the victory that Jesus won through His death and resurrection. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much. Thank you that you are who you said you are, Lord Jesus. Thank you that in all of your power and glory and might, you call our name. You show up for us. And so, Lord, I'm just praying for the setting that the resurrection story happened. It feels like our setting, God. It feels like a garden that is both filled with beauty and loss. God is filled with flowers and dirt. But Lord, I pray that we would be reminded, Lord Jesus, that there is a day coming where the Garden of Eden will be restored, 
Lord Jesus, where you will be dwelling with us again. And we have a hope that will not disappoint. And so, Lord, I pray just for that, the, the imagery just to swell up within us in the weeks and months to come. Lord God, of new life that has been given to us through you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship the Lord of the next few minutes. Um, and if you made that decision today, would you do me a favor? Just click on that connect button on our website and just send us a note. Saying, I would like to start a relationship with Jesus. We'd love to send you a Bible, um, a devotional journal that we have called a Lectio Divina Journal. And we would love to journey with you on this. We're so thankful that we stand here today because of the risen Christ. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.